Amen. Thank you. All right. All right. I want to thank uh, Paul Jacobs. God bless you, man. Filling in for us. We pray for Josh and Brittany. Uh, they're gone from us, but uh, they're on to a new mission field. We're very glad. I want you to come next week. Uh, we've got a candidate for our new worship pastor. His name's Ryan McBride. He's coming in from Missouri. Uh, he's going to be ministering here. He wants to meet everybody. We've got a potluck next week, so we're going to feed him up. We're going to love on him and, and be blessed by him and, and just want you to be in prayer for that. Um, how are we doing? How are we doing? Good? Good? You're awake now. That's good. Thank you. Uh, we're going to have a great morning this morning. I, I don't know. I'm, pre- I'm preaching on Coke Zero, so I don't know how that's going to go. Uh, it's usually Diet Coke for me, as you know. Um, but we're, we're living on the edge. Uh, we're doing uh, this morning, we are in a series, we're going through the book of Acts, verse by verse, and we're in a, a series called Holy Spirit Unleashed. This is the third of four messages, and uh, we're so glad you're here. I uh, promised you last week uh, that we'd be looking at a sermon that Peter gave and that his listeners would hate to hear, and you would too. And so I expected that to thin our ranks a little bit this week, but I, I you know, very brave for showing up. I really appreciate that. I, I think that's a God thing, um, because when you tell people that they're going to have the experience of uh, the spiritual equivalent of being pistol whipped, and they come anyway, say, yeah, bring that on. That's a God thing. So thank you for being here. Next week, we take a look at uh, the radiant life, the glorious church. It's going to be such a blessing, so uh, so encouraging, such a picture of what God wants in the church. But we have to, we have to really deal with, uh, with the word and, and what it's opening up for us today. So we're glad you're here. Acts chapter 2. We're in Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it there. If you don't have a Bible, I uh, really want you to follow along with us uh, in a Bible. If you don't have one with you, look under the seat in front of you. Uh, if there's not one there, if you'd raise your hand, uh, Roy will get you one. Uh, if you don't have one at home and you want to take one with you, take this with you. It's yours. It's our free gift. We want it to be in your home. We want it to be in your hands. We want it to be in your heart. So take it. Love it. Uh, uh, while you're turning there, Acts chapter 2, I want to uh, thank John Piper. John Piper is a wonderful past, pastor, and, and his teaching on this section of, of Scripture so touched me, so moved me, and uh, has uh, greatly influenced uh, what I'm going to share with you today. As you're turning there, I want to I ask you a question. Was there any, ever a time when you didn't know what you were doing and things got so messed up that you wondered if they could ever be made right. Now, husbands, freeze. When I ask that question, do not even make a twitch in the direction of your wife. If you look at your wife, when I ask the question, when there, is there ever a time when, when you didn't know what you were doing and things got so messed up, and you look at her and she thinks that you're thinking of your wedding day, things are going to go very bad and I cannot help you. But I want you to think. I want you to think, was there a time you didn't know what you were doing? You said, if I had known, I wouldn't have done that. What comes to mind, uh, there are many things that come to mind, but the one I I, I got permission to share with you is is about my son Tommy, our son Tommy. Uh, Just before he came home from school in Chicago, uh, we got a beautiful letter uh, from the the Illinois Tollway Association. 
It's right here. I brought it as proof. And, and what happened was, um, you need to understand that, that in Illinois, uh, there's tolls for everything. There's tolls for everything. Like, uh, to back out of your driveway, there's a toll. You want to take a right on red, there's a toll. McDonald's drive through adjust your mirrors, change the radio station, there's a toll. I mean, you have to wear one of those change belts just to go downtown. Um, so that's how they do it. And, and here's what happens. See, Tommy's roommate is Connor. Connor lives in Florida. Connor has a truck. And, and, and instead of change, they have this option. You can buy an iPass, much like you can in Denver. And the iPass, it sits on your dash, like on the front there. And instead of having to come up with change, they bill you, right? So... Tommy and Connor, Tommy has a car up there, and sometimes they would go in Connor's truck, but sometimes they'd use Tommy's car, depending upon who had gas and things like that. So if they were in Tommy's car, they'd take Connor's iPass and put it on Tommy's dashboard, and we thought that was okay. The Illinois Tollway Association thought differently. You see, here's how it works, because when you go through the toll, when you go through the iPass lane, the big brother cameras that they have there are car vehicle specific, you see. So they take this picture, one of which is on the top of the letter. Isn't that cute? That's Tommy driving his car. Isn't that great? You can't see him. He's not waving to us because he didn't know his photograph was being taken because the Big Brother cameras realize that's Connor's iPass. That's not Connor's truck. That's a little scary, isn't it? I think that's proof of the second coming, don't you? Yeah. And the times. And it says, this guy didn't buy the iPass, because it talks, I, I think. And so what they do is they send you the bill, but they wait. See, the tolls average about 60 cents a piece, which is not so bad, because, well, he had 17 violations. But 60 cents still, it's not that bad. But if you wait 30 days to pay him, there's a $20 per violation fee. Yeah, yeah, you're making the face that I made. You're not gripping your chest, but you're making the face. But they just sent us this letter with violations going back to September of 08. Can you imagine? So they got it so that you're going to have to pay them a lot of money. Essentially, this list of violations adds up to roughly 400 bucks. So Tommy was sorry. He said, if I knew, we never would have done it. And I, I believe him. I mean, he's still got to pay it. He can't go back to school next semester. But I still believe him. <laughs> no, but we called, and they understood, and they got it all wiped out, and it's all okay. It's all okay. But what I want to do is focus in on are there times in your life where you didn't know what you were doing and things got so messed up that you wondered if they could ever be made right again? Except it's a little bit more serious than an unexpected $400 bill. What I'm going to ask you this morning is this question. Did you kill Jesus Christ? Did you kill Jesus Christ? And I'm going to assume that your first reaction is a little bit defensive and in denial that something so far away could even, could even come, you know? And I believe 
that, um, that you might even hate your pastor <laughs> for asking you that question. But I need to ask it anyway, did you kill Jesus Christ? And essentially, what Peter is laying out before the Jews, the thousands of Jews that he is speaking to, that have come together for the celebration of the Pentecost, is that they did. Did you kill Jesus Christ? And you might say, dude, I wasn't even there. Which sounds like a bad line from Law and Order SUV or SVU or whatever you got. There's thousands of people there. And they're probably even saying, some of them, I didn't even go to Passover. Man, it was a packed weekend. I didn't even go. What do you mean, did I kill Jesus Christ? And we're going to find out that it has very little to do with where you went or where you didn't go, or when you lived or when you didn't live. And so the question that you and that I, and I'm so glad to be bringing this message because it's been hammering on my heart all week, and now we can let it hammer on us together. Remember that, that Peter is talking with several thousand Jewish people. Many of these had nothing to do with it. Some might have been part of the mob that came together at Passover and got in the crowd and shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But many probably didn't. But we're going to see that it, that really doesn't matter. How can he say that if that's the dynamic, if that's the crowd? He can say it because everybody in that crowd was involved in the crime against Jesus Christ. And we need to get this straight. The essence of the crime that was committed against Jesus Christ was not primarily in the ending of his physical life. Was not primarily the ending of his physical life. In essence, the essence of the crime committed against Jesus was the rejection of God the Father's endorsement of him as Lord, as Messiah, as Savior, as rejecting that and accusing him of blasphemy. That was the charge that they levied against Jesus. Think about this carefully because it has huge implications on us 2,000 years later, right here, right now. Ending his physical life was one part. But a huge part was rejecting God the Father's endorsement of Jesus in all of these ways as Lord and Savior, as Messiah, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he claimed to be this, they shouted blasphemy. Before it gets you to Acts, uh, I want to turn to Luke 22, verses 70 and 71. Here it is. So they all said, to Jesus, are you the son of God then? And he replied to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And from there, they sent him to Pilate. They shouted blasphemy. Now, from our lips, we can say, we agree with God the Father's endorsement of Jesus in all of these ways, but it's not our lips that we're concerned about today. It's not even our behavior. It's our hearts. What do our hearts testify in the deepest recesses of who we are, of what we believe, of what we cling to and surrender to? What do our hearts believe? In our heart of hearts, do we celebrate and embrace God the Father's endorsement of Jesus Christ, or do we reject it? 
and through our hearts cry out, blasphemy. He is not Lord. He is not Savior. That's what we've got to wrestle with. Jesus claimed that the God the Father was endorsing him as Messiah, as Savior, but the Jewish rulers rejected the role of God in Jesus' life. That's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. As we look through this passage, I want you to take a look at the different endorsements of God the Father of Jesus. And we need to take a look at the fact that in this passage, Peter for the Jews and God for us this morning is contrasting the way that God treated Jesus, the way that God the Father treated Jesus, and the way the Jews treated Jesus, the way the Romans treated Jesus, the way we treat Jesus. We need to see the stark contrast there. And what Peter is laying before his people, the people before him, the thousands that have gathered, is did they kill Jesus Christ? And did we? Okay, it's a good, it's a good long passage. If you've got your Bibles, I want you there. I'm going to pick it up in 22. I'm going to read through it. Then we're going to unpack it in a couple of sections. I need you to stay with us. I need you to stay focused. Uh, verse 22, chapter 2. Men of Israel, Peter is speaking. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God the Father with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, for David said concerning him, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter said, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh ever see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that, this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's the birth of the first megachurch. 120 before this sermon. 3,120 after it. Let's pray and we'll get to work. Lord, thank you for your word. I ask you to have mercy on me. Lord, as I seek to share your beautiful truth, that hurts, hurts to share that hurts to receive, but leads to healing and hope and glory. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. This is it. May it go forth and bear the fruit that only you can bring through your Holy Spirit, new life and forgiveness. And in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. I pray for the Holy Spirit that he would fall on us, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, that your word would go forth and pierce our hearts and that we would never be the same. And Lord, that we might respond as the Jews did that day, saying, what shall we do if we'd only known? Lord, thank you for the hope. That is within the gospel. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. And I ask you to forgive me my sins, and I wish they were not so many. All right, here we go. Here we go. We're going to unpack this starting in verse 22. Starting in verse 22, here we go. A little background. You know that, that the 120 were in the upper room. Jesus had promised to pour out his Holy Spirit. They were praying, they were praying for 10 days and the Holy Spirit fell on them and there was wind inside, tongues of fire came upon them and and there were Jews all through. It was crowded in Jerusalem. Thousands of throngs had come to celebrate Pentecost and they heard them speaking the wonders of God in their own languages, many, many languages. And they came and they asked what's going on. And we take a look at that last week with the prophecy of Joel and, and what would happen and dreaming dreams and seeing visions. You remember? And then Peter lays it out. He says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. And he's not just saying, um, if, if you got a minute, just uh, listen up. He's saying, listen, not just with your ears, but listen with the depths of your heart. Listen with the depths of your soul. Don't listen like you would listen to a ball game that you're not really interested in. And just check in from time to time. Zero in, because this is truth. This is life. This is the gospel. And if you have gotten everything in your life absolutely wrong up until this point, and you get this right, it's going to go very well for you in this life and for all eternity. But if you have gotten everything right in your life up until this point, but you get this wrong, it is going to go very badly for you, both now and for eternity. Listen up. Hang on every word. 
because it is not mine. It is the word of God. And this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. Listen, listen. He said, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, stop there. Look at verse 22. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. His message, Paul's, Peter's message rather, to the Jews begins with Jesus. Begins the beginning, the middle, the end. It's Jesus. That is what all scripture is. In the Old Testament, from the first verse of Revelation, Genesis, to the end, last verse of Revelation, it's all about revealing Jesus Christ. People are amazed. They say, I put my finger in the Bible. I open it up. It's talking about Jesus. Yes, it's all about him. Somebody was visiting this church and uh, they talked to Matt and they said, Matt, I'm really enjoying coming to church. They had never done that before. But one, you're seeing, you seem to be hung up on two things. You've always got the Bible open and you're always talking about Jesus. And he said, you got it. That's where we'll always be. That's where God has called us to be. That is where life is. That is where hope is. That is where truth is. That is where joy is. And that's where we are going to be. And so Peter is there, and he says, hear these words. He starts, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. God the Father has endorsed Jesus. How did he do it? Goes on with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. That God was actually doing this work through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, every time he did a miracle, it's as if God was saying as he did in Luke 9, 35. He is saying, this is my son. Every time he healed somebody or multiplied loaves and fishes or, or spoke truth or raised people from the dead, as he said in Luke 9, 35, the father said, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him with every miracle. He did signs, he did wonders, he did mighty works, and through them God the Father was endorsing Jesus as the one he had sent. And he did them, it says, in your midst, as you yourselves know. He did them right in front of your face. He traveled around as you were yourselves there. No. He says, you were there, you were there, you were there. You saw it. You heard it. You were stirred by it. And what does this mean 2,000 years later? I think it means the same thing. You were there. You were there. You were there. How many times were you there when God showed up and blessed you and forgive, forgave you, opened a door that no one could shut, answered a prayer, spared you, had mercy upon you. Those of us who live or vacation here in the Gunnison Valley, every mountain he's put before us, every starry night that he's given us to proclaim his greatness, every beautiful sunset, every breeze, every river, you were there, you were there, you were there, you saw it, you saw it. And this is how he keeps us focused. Peter, throughout this passage, three times, he's going to say, this Jesus. Take a look at it in 23. He says, focus in this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's another endorsement of God the Father. 
the crucifixion, the cross, didn't surprise God. Didn't surprise God. It's not like after Jesus had came, when he was, uh, when he was arrested, the Holy Spirit didn't lean over to God the Father and say, uh, Father, uh, I've been noticing that things are going kind of bad and they've arrested him. I think they're going to kill him. I think they're going to kill him unless we do something about it. God the Father didn't say, huh, yeah, I hadn't been watching. Um, you know, I think it's a little late for intervention. I think we ought to just see how this plays out. We'll try to untangle it all a little bit later. No, it wasn't a surprise. As the Bible said, it was a definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God the Father endorsed Jesus by saying, this is the perfect, spotless Passover lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. The crucifixion was not a surprise. God endorses him as the perfect Passover lamb. God endorses him, and it goes on in verse 30, 30, uh, excuse me, 23. God endorses him, and it says, and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Look at the difference. God, the Father endorses Jesus, and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. 24, and God raised him up loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God endorses Jesus Christ as the one who works miracles, as the one who does signs, who does wonders. God endorses Jesus as as the sacrificial, perfect Passover lamb, God endorses Jesus as the Savior by raising him from the dead. And what do they do? What do they do? They cry blasphemy and they kill him and God raises him up. And this is very hard for Peter's audience, for the thousands of Jews who were there, who have come not expecting this, to receive. It is hard for them to receive. It is hard for us to receive. In fact, it's so hard for us to receive that there's churches after churches after churches that will not preach this. This Jesus whom God has endorsed, you killed. Very difficult. Why is it so difficult for Peter's audience? Because he is preaching to a group of religious people. He is preaching to a group of moral people. These are people who go to church. These are people who worship. These are people who read scripture and memorize scripture. And what he's saying is, you have rejected, you have rejected, you have rejected the endorsement of God the Father, of Jesus the Christ. And so you are anti-God. With all that you think that you are, with all that you think that you've learned, with all that you think that you've done, you have rejected God, the Father, by calling into question his endorsement of Jesus Christ. He has endorsed him by, the, by saying that he is the the worker of miracles. It doesn't matter if you say, he's saying this, it doesn't matter if you say you know God, it doesn't matter if you say you believe in him, it doesn't matter if you say you serve him and worship him, if you reject his endorsement of Jesus as the worker of signs and miracles, if you reject God the Father's endorsement of Jesus as the one who is the Passover spotless lamb that has come to take away the sins of the world, if you reject, it doesn't matter if you say you know him, if you reject 
the fact that God endorsed him as the Savior by raising him from the dead. And he says, you killed Jesus Christ. And my friends, we must understand that the proof, the test of whether or not we know God is our embracing of God the Father's endorsement of Jesus Christ. That is not a politically correct message. All roads do not lead home. Do we embrace God the Father's endorsement of Jesus Christ or do we, as the crowds, not with our lips, but with our hearts, reject it? Reject it. That's the test. 25 through uh, onward. For David says concerning him, what is Peter doing here? He's going back to Scripture. He's going back to the Old Testament. Whenever we're, whenever we're talking about Jesus, whenever we're talking about God, whenever we're pursuing the faith and seeking truth, we go back to the Scriptures. And that's what Peter does. He goes back to the Scriptures. And he said, David, and all their ears perked up. Because David was the patriarch of the faith. David was their rock star theologian. He was, he was the man after God's own heart. He wrote the Psalms. David, he said, David wrote in Psalm 16. And he begins to quote. And they knew this passage. But they never knew that David was talking, not about himself. But David was prophesying, seeing in the future, Jesus Christ. So he's prophesying about Jesus Christ. He says, you know the scripture. You don't even know who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. And in 25, he says, David wrote, I saw the Lord always before me. I being Jesus saw the Lord God, God the Father, always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope for you will not be abandoning my soul to Hades or let your Holy One Jesus Christ, see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence for the joy set before him. That is the exact same thing. Christ endured the cross. He is saying David saw it. David saw it years and years and years ago. And you memorized the words, but you didn't realize he was speaking of Jesus and you rejected the one that David praised. He sets them straight in verse 29. He says, brothers, let me dial you in. Let me track with this. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he wasn't talking about himself because David, he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And if you got time, I'll take you over there. David is writing and singing and praising Jesus Christ. And the grave could not hold him, not David. This Jesus, 30, David being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants, Jesus Christ, on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 32, here it is again. Focus on it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, the 120 of them. Many of them had seen, the, they were all res, witnesses of the, of the resurrected Christ. God raised him up. Verse 33, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God. 
Here's another endorsement of God the Father of Jesus Christ. He exalted him. He raised God, Father, follow, follow this, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, anointed him, endorsing him as Savior, Messiah, and then he exalted him to the right hand of the Father, which makes him Lord. This is the place of ultimate authority over all creation, which he made. Jesus. And here is why it is horrific. It is utterly horrific for them. Because he is seated at the right hand of God. And you look at this and say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that God is right-handed? Well, (laughs) no. Although to you lefties, I would say that he is. Um, But... Being at the right hand of God is the most exalted, anointed position. And what had they done? They had debased him. They had thrown him in the dirt. This Jesus, this Jesus whom you mocked, whom your hearts and your lips betrayed, whom you cried out blasphemy, you threw him on the ground and you beat him and you whipped him and you scourged him and you spit on him and you led him to Calvary and you mashed a crown of thorns upon his head rather than the crown of glory that God gave him and you nailed him to a cross and you jeered at him as he died. And this Jesus, God the Father, has raised up and put at his right hand. You rejected him, you dismissed him, you ignored him, you put him in a box. And what do we do? What do we do? We didn't do that. We didn't do that. What have our hearts done? Compartmentalized? We have this box that we put God in and we expect him to stay in there. Maybe every other Sunday he lives on Sunday. We'll celebrate his day. We'll get filled with his word. But not at work. Not at class. Not when we're with our girlfriend or boyfriend. Not when we're fighting with our spouse. Not when we're disobeying our parents. Not when we're treating our kids with disrespect. Not when, oh, but we believe. We believe. We compartmentalize him. We let him out of his box. God exalted him to his right hand. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And my friend, the greatest lie, one of the greatest lies that is being told to the modern church is Jesus just wants a piece of your life. Just a piece of your life. My friends, If he is king of kings and lord of lords, which he is, and he does not have all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all your time, all your resources, then something else in your life is ultimate and something else on your life is on the throne, regardless of how many Bibles you own, how often you show up here, or what you say you believe. We're no different. We're no different than they are. God exalted him to the highest place. He deserves nothing less than our everything. He didn't come and be just a little bit of your savior. You're going to stand before him and say, 
I'm so glad you had a little bit of my life. Why? Because we don't want to turn into freaky, weird Christians who spell out the name of Jesus with croutons on the salad like we talked about. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to give our everything to him because of the glorious calling of who he he wants to be through us. If his spirit is living in us, there's such a radical difference between the people who follow God in this book and me and you that it ought to drive us to our knees and cry out, have mercy. The things I don't want to be, why? Because I'm afraid of what somebody else is going to, He's going to think of me. I'm more concerned about what the plumb line of the word of God is going to say about me. I'm more concerned about what Jesus Christ is going to think of me. Because it's inconvenient to follow him. It's inconvenient to honor his day, to link with his people, to, to be on mission with him. It's inconvenient for him to be on the cross. It's inconvenient for him to intercede for me. And hold me up and save me right now and for all eternity. My friends, we serve a God of no half measures. But if there's anything that identifies the church in America, it is the church of half measures, of holding back of saying, yeah, I got a mental ascent. Yeah, I'm going to check the right box. If you ask me if Jesus is Lord and King of Kings, yeah, yeah, I'd say so. What does your heart say? I'm not even going to talk about our behavior because it all comes from what's in here, right? If our heart is right, all our behaviors are going to take care of themselves. That's where the church misses so many times. They're hammering on people. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Serving God has become a checklist. No. It's a heart transplant. It's a heart transplant. You get the heart right. The actions, the behavior, they take care of themselves. Don't be mowing down the dandelions as we talked about. Get them up by the root. Go down to the root today. Where are you? Where are you? Where am I? Okay, here we go. He endorses him as not only Savior but Lord. Here's another endorsement. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he endorses him as the one who will receive the Holy Spirit and will pour it out. And this is what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's endorsing him as the one who receives and pours out the Holy Spirit. When we're talking about pouring out the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about an eyedropper. We're not talking about a turkey baster. We're not talking about a pitcher. We're talking about standing under Niagara Falls. We're talking about standing by Taylor Dam. If if the dam just broke loose, that's what we're talking about. That's the measure he's promising, right? For us, you're experiencing it. You're being transformed by it because that's what he promised. That's what he's doing to those who are willing to receive, for those who are willing to obey, those who are willing to receive the endorsement of God the Father for Jesus. He's pouring it out. It's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. The Holy Spirit in you pouring out of you to touch the lives of everybody you come in contact with. How are we doing? Okay. 
Okay, we're moving. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord God the Father said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand. Come, my son. I have exalted you until I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter in verse 36 summarizes, say in case you missed it, just in case you missed it, here it is, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God the Father has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Savior. This Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus, whom you crucified. God is outside of time. We're real fond of saying, all my sins were there on the cross. They were, as for all our rejections, all our rejections. Why, why do we have to preach and read the painful parts. Why do we have to go with it? Because in order to receive the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of who he is and what he has done for you, we have to connect and get real and get honest with what we've done. And only those who are broken over sin, only those who are the most broken will be the most blessed. If we reject his gospel that says we are guilty, then we cannot share in his victory. We have to go there. We have to go there so that we can be raised up as Christ was raised up. Here we go, last section. You're going to make it, I promise. Verse 37, here's what they did. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were pricked in their heart. They were pierced through. That's what our prayer is. That's what God's desire is, that everyone everywhere would be pierced through their hearts. He does surgery on our hearts. Why? To lay them open to be available to receive Christ in a new and fresh way completely completely. And if your hearts are pierced, it is God who is doing it. And if your heart is not pierced by this word, you have much to fear. Not because of the one preaching it, but because the word and the spirit of God. And they say that if your heart is not pierced by this truth, then your heart is hard. You have so hardened it and you must beg him to soften it so that it can be pierced and broken. Because that is the only way to new life. That is only way to the joy and abundance and blessing that we're going to talk about next week. Tell your friends who stayed away because of the pistol whipping. Bring them. They were pierced to the heart. Are you pierced to the heart? A lot of us, a lot of us, particularly if you've been hanging around church a lot, we don't have a problem uh, recognizing and accepting God the Father's endorsement of Jesus as Savior. We know we can't do anything. We can't earn our salvation. But the Lord part, the Lord part, 
yeah, it's real quick and easy for us to say yes, but what is that about? It's about making him ultimate in our lives. And here's why it's so difficult for us Americans in this day and age, even in the recession. God has provided us with so many good things, good things, family and opportunity and and, and meeting our needs and things like that, that it's so easy for us to take the good things that he's blessed us with and make them ultimate. And the world will applaud you. Family first. No. That's how to get your family messed up. Jesus first. Jesus first. Work first. Future first. No, we don't believe that. Really? Really? We just sent high school students. They just graduated. And I guarantee you there are going to be parents that come to us a year from now and say, my son, my daughter, we took them to church and now they're, they're rejecting God and they're, they're running with the wrong crowd and they're doing all of this stuff. Why are they doing that? What is going on? They're living the faith that you brought them up with. And if God is not first in your life, what you taught them was getting into that college was more important than being passionate about Jesus Christ. What you taught them was getting the right job was most important. What you taught them was that that being in the right social circles was most important. What you taught them was if there's anything competing with Sunday, you can go do that because God's always going to be there for you. You've reaped what you've sown. You've not made God ultimate. In the middle, not only first, but it first in every other thing, in family, in relationships, in finances. We don't talk about them at our kitchen table. We don't pray. We don't read the word in our house. We just sort of expect. My friends, what repentance is, which Peter calls us to, I'm jumping ahead. He said, what do you do? What do you do? Peter says, repent. And that is not a bad word. That's not a negative word. It is the most beautiful word. Do you know why? Because it says that God has provided a second chance. He has provided a way back. As soon as we realize that we've been running through tolls that are jacking up our prices and and we didn't know what we were doing, he takes us off that path and puts us on the path that leads where we think we need to go, where he says we need to go. My friends, many people inside and outside the church are walking a path that does not end in the place where they think it does and where they want to go. And here Peter is saying, the path that you're on, the path that you're on of not accepting the endorsement of God the Father, of rejecting that in your hearts, of not living that out to the fullest, of not crying out to Jesus for mercy, that path does not lead where you think it does. This is our chance to turn around. Think about it. If you're on a vacation, how many of you guys have done this? You take the map. You're supposed to, there's supposed to be an exit there. Well, there's not. Right? You thought you were taking the right, the right turn. And, and in, in Chicago, they don't even have. You can't even get back on the highway you used to be on. So what do you do? Do you stop and ask directions? No. You drive another 40 minutes. Right? You keep going down the wrong road. That's how we live life. He's saying repent. Repent is more than being sorry for our past life. It is totally turning our backs on the way we've been going. And saying, God, God, take me back. Take me back. Set me right. It's beautiful. Repentance is not what is required before you come to Christ. Repentance is coming to Christ. And it is beautiful. Because on the other side of that doorway 
is every grace, every mercy, every blessing that Christ died to give you. They're broken. They said, what do we do? He said, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. This doesn't sound like a radical claim, but Jews were not baptized as a, as a tradition. Gentiles were baptized when they wanted to become Jews. So now he's saying to the Jews, you need to become baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when you do, he gives you two gifts. When you believe, you repent, gives you two gifts, the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the Holy Spirit. This is the offer. Trade your death for life. Trade your wrong road for the right road. Trade your rejection in your heart, even if not on your lips, for the acceptance and the embrace. This is the promise for who? For you and for your children. And get this, and for all who are far off, that's us, that's us. Far off in distance, far off in time. This promise is for you. It is laid upon you right now, right now. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself right now, right now, God is calling some of you to himself for the first time or the first time in a long time to really get down to the heart level and say, yes, Jesus, you are my God. You are my Lord. And I've been playing these games of half measures and I'm done with it. If he is calling to your heart, I plead with you. I beg you, respond. The heart of God is that the kingdom of God, that his mercy should extend to the ends of the earth, that everyone would call upon his name. Respond. Respond. Respond to him. The heart of God is that everyone would come. The heart of this church will ever be that everyone would come. Will you come? Get this, verse 40. It's one of my favorite verses. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Peter went on. Peter preached long, okay? This was not a short sermon. So preaching long is now scriptural. I love it. Okay, here we go. 41. It's the last one. You've made it. So those who received his word were baptized. They had faith. They believed. They were cut to the heart. They exposed it before God. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. Well, these are moot because... I left those a long time ago. 3,000 souls in one day. Some of us, some of us like to put God in a box and say, yeah, God did that because God was starting his church and it's no longer his desire to pour out his spirit, to convict people in their hearts, to draw them to himself in that measure. Baloney. Baloney. 
God has done great things in our midst by his grace alone. The biggest Sunday we've had was March 29th in terms of baptisms when 11 people came and were baptized this year. Since January, we've had nine people pray to accept Christ and 27 have been baptized. This day in the early church, we praise God for that. We do. 3,000 were added to their number. God is just getting started. We live in a community of 5,000, 6,000 with a college community of roughly 2,500. 90% of our community is unchurched. 95% of our college is unchurched. God is just getting started. But for him to work the way he worked in the early church, we must be broken as his early church was and have no half measures. Have no half measures. Do we embrace God the Father's endorsement of Jesus Christ? Or in our heart of hearts, the way we go through life, do we reject it? Did you and I kill Jesus? If he's dead in our lives, it's us who did it. He wants to be alive like he never has before in your life life. That promise is for you and for your children and for me. Let's say yes. We're going to pray and then we've got a closing song. We're going to dim the lights. We're going to ask if you want to leave, do it quietly. Do it quietly. If you want to stay, do business with God in your heart. Go through these scriptures. Pray at the altar. Pray with one of us. You can do that. But if you want to go, just go quietly. Next week, we've got Ryan McBride. I want you to come. I want you to embrace him. I want you to pray for him. I want you to experience that. We're going to be talking about the radiant life, the glorious church as Jesus dreamed it. It's the other side of this. It's beauty and grace and blessing and encouragement. Come. For now, let us respond. Let us pray.